Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Hello once again to one and all. Today, we're going to keep it local. Today, I'm Peter J. I'm always Peter J. by the way, just, just to clarify that. And I feel like I just had an Ellen moment where, anyway, as in her book, she said, my point, and I do have one. Was that digressing enough? Within 20 seconds, I managed to do lateral arabesques to three completely unrelated ideas. Good morning. Anyway, I would like this morning for us to focus on something that we tend not to perhaps give enough attention to, and that is the good works of all of the people who work right next to us at the local level. You know, we on this program talk about all of the wonderful things that might be possible toward a more perfect union, but at the end of the day, who's keeping the roads drivable, passable, who's taking out the trash, who's doing all the stuff that make government work right up against our property and right up against our needs. So that said, today it's all about being local. And I thought that we would talk about our respective towns and the good works that they are doing to make sure that our days are convenient, easy, manageable, and that we are all capable of moving forward however we wish to do so. And we never think about these things. They just sort of, you know, we take them for granted. We take a lot of it for granted. And so, <clears throat> as many of us know, when you choose to enter into a life of government service, it's often in a volunteer position often on some type of local committee. And for all of those reasons, those people need to be thanked. In fact, uh, last night I was in Franklin Town Chambers. And it's my job, of course, to make sure that the local government meetings go well and that we meet our uh, open meeting laws and that everybody gets a chance to participate, both by Zoom as well as in chambers. And last night I was talking to uh, Tom Mercer, chair of, of town council, before the meeting began. And uh, we were talking about, you know, making the equipment work, making it all smooth and all that. And, and having a lighter moment, I reminded Tom, you know, I get paid for doing what I do. You don't. But so thank you very much. <laughs> and he laughed and, you know, we continued what we were doing. But it's true. Being on town council here in Franklin is a tough job. It's, it's a 24-7 job. We have had people recently say, I've had enough. It has become too contentious. I don't think I want to do it again. And yes, of course, it's given other people a chance to step up. And we had a great local election. And we have new members who are bringing their enthusiasm to it. Anyway, this morning, joining me, of course, as usual, are Dr. Natalie Alinos and Dr. Michael Walker-Jones and 
Representative Jeff Roy. That said, we're all going to take a look at what's going on in our respective zip codes and why we are thankful. Good morning, guys. Good morning. morning. Pete, I can jump in because, um, as you mentioned, you were uh, in your sort of town meeting yesterday. Mm -hmm. Brookline, uh, where I live, we just kicked off our um, fall town meeting. Uh So I was there from 7 p.m. till 11 p.m. last night, and it's going to happen again tonight. Uh We're getting a bit of a break for Thanksgiving, and then three more nights the first week of December and probably the second week of December. So after I ran for Congress, I decided that I didn't, you know, that I at Mm -hmm. least had an obligation to do something Mm -hmm. at the local level. I had made a name and people Mm -hmm. asked me to run for town meeting. And as Mm -hmm. you said, it's a volunteer position. There are 240 members or so, and we, uh, you know, people put forward Warren articles and they are very, very much about the local level. And Mm. it is a lot of work. We do, we're we're not a city, so we don't have a mayor. We have a select board of five, an advisory council of 30. They work all the time. But for Mm -hmm. the rest of us who are, you know, the regular town meeting members, we show up in the fall and in the spring for these, you know, marathon, three-week, multi-night sessions, which are tremendously powerful because you do hear directly from people. For example, one issue that's coming to the table was put forward by a 16-year-old student in Brooklyn where he wants to make fur illegal, selling fur illegal. And Newton and Wellesley has done this. And he, you know, he came and talked to us and he basically said, you know, I love my dog. I couldn't imagine somebody killing it for its fur. And, you know, but it's so, it's not only what we get done, which is really important, but it's also building, you know, the future of excited people who can participate. It allows people to participate in local government. But Pete, I want to share that the articles that we reviewed yesterday were exactly about participation and what we've learned from COVID and how we can do better. So we have had much more participation of parents with young kids, of people with disabilities, of people who work multiple jobs, but therefore, you know, could do it from home. And that it has sort of disrupted the volunteer model. In the past, it has been very much town meeting uh, people who are retired, who have wealth, who are homeowners, and who do it, you know, as a volunteer, really grateful, but it's not representative of our town. But COVID disrupted that. You had parents who were worried about the schools. Uh, you had, you know, people with disabilities who were worried about what COVID would mean, getting much more involved, and participation really erupted. And so the sort of hope for us in town meeting, and we did pass some Warren articles last night, is to ensure that that accessibility continues, continues through hybrid meetings, continues through um, having more audiovisual. But when Jeff comes, we need to talk a little bit about the hybrid meeting. We mm. have passed it at the local level, but it's actually at the state that they need to approve it uh, right. to allow us because that decision is not left to us uh, on our own. I think at this point, it, uh, by the first, before I say anything else, I have to say congratulations, and I am so sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it's it's work it, because I know from what I speak to the local counselors and people who volunteer on their various positions that you know the phone rings, and and even beyond Zoom, and the fact that there is a formal meeting, and as you point out, much higher engagement because people can. In other words, we have work from home. And now we also have complain from home as a, as a new phenomenon where people can pipe in and say what they want. But then there's also support from home. We get people yeah. who join the meetings and they want to say something where they are thankful, where something has happened well. Uh, and that's also nice to see. 
And so that said, if there's any a component of Build Back Better, it's actually building a better society by having a more engaged society because we've lowered the bar thanks to technology and ironically, thanks to COVID as a driving factor that made it happen. Think about how willing we were to work this way via Zoom prior to COVID. It was something of a novelty and a lot of people were pretty resistant, but now it's part of the fabric. I'm going to have a meeting tonight at 7.30 with one of the you know, town uh, committees, which I'm going to participate in uh, to make sure that it airs properly. And, you know, they're going to do that all the way through the winter. And they know this. And the state rule that you mentioned is going to continue all the way into, I think it's next April, April of 22. Mm -hmm. So yes, between now and that time, Zoom will be our method of choice for many people. And hopefully, we will have enough data to say this needs to continue. And so um, I think that's a great thing. I think just from the increase in participation alone, that data is already in. That I don't see where we can go back to a in-person, to in-person meetings exclusively when we have seen how much good, bad, and indifferent folks will at least show up if I can do it at ease and even from the comfort of my home or from work or in my car or on my phone, it has, I think, opened our eyes up to what I believe we've been striving for, which is more input in a representative government. Uh, Now, that being said, it's important for us to realize that, uh, uh, because I think that there are two levels of this, one at the local level for sure, it's important for our local leaders to listen. This is not about your having been elected and then go off without any input from the people you represent. Correct. And many of the folks who are now tuning in are beginning to realize that that was actually what was happening in the past. And that's why I think we have extremes. Because now people are beginning to see, and it's happening here in Franklin, people are beginning to see, now, wait a minute, you mean to tell me you're doing this? No one asked me about that. And this may be my street. This may be my neighborhood. Nobody asked me about that. So, and then the angst comes when the representative says, well, you don't have all of the information and we are sitting here up on high. And no citizen wants to hear that, oh, So because you had the information, you didn't feel confident or respectful enough to come back to me and ask me. So I think at the local level, we have we have not only seen, but I hope we've learned this lesson that more participation is good. And and I've got a quick personal story about town meeting uh, because, Franklin, we we don't have town meeting. We have a uh, town council, but no mayor. Again, we have a right. Uh, a town manager who's hired by the town council. But I recall working in uh, in uh, a town in the on the North Shore. I'll leave it. Uh, I'll leave its name out. And they had town meeting. And one of the warrants that came up <laughs> in front of town meeting was about ratification of the teacher contract. And I love town meeting, actually. Uh, and even when I was working for MTA, one of the reasons I love it is because with if you've got 150 or 200 uh, people, 
you better get that membership activated if you want to have some some conversation with 200 and something people, which helped us tremendously because now it's not just the leadership of the association, but every member, especially those who live in the town, has to go out and we have to target, you know, all of the town meeting members and we made sure that we had contact with them. And so I think it's a wonderful form of government to get especially the the uh, the interest groups engaged. So I don't know if you found that uh, not to Leah to be true. I mean, you find people are calling you up or meeting you at town meeting uh, uh, with all kinds of different proposals. Oh, completely. And then the behind the scenes, the off hours calls on, on lots of issues. I mean, we are discussing some very serious issues. For example, you know, we're discussing whether to have more marijuana dispensaries. And so people are bringing it to, I'm, I'm also on the advisory council on public health to ask, you know, what are the links between dispensaries density and sort of youth use or overuse and misuse. And, you know, actually the data is pretty limited. So there was a Warren article yesterday that basically said, okay, we need to study this before we expand this. But then there's really big issues around the four that we have are white owned. And so there were the equity issues, like why didn't we do better? So I feel like the this town meeting allows us to have real debates offline and online, obviously with the open sort of you know, open rules, like most big conversations are happening in front of everybody on the record. Uh, but behind the scenes, you know, it, it is a really fascinating way to get to know your neighbors and what they care about. You know, you find out who, which neighbors have a child that is, say, struggling with substance use or which neighbors have an elderly parent that they need to care for or a disability. So it also breaks down, you know, because the issues that people care about often become personal and people then share their personal stories. It's a, it's an interesting way to get to know your community. A big question for me is who is left out? And Brooklyn has a very large um, international community, both who are non-citizens. And actually Brooklyn has voted to allow non-citizens to vote at the local level because our laws, but that was not approved by the state, you know, but at the local level that had been put forward as a Warren article, I understand before I joined town meeting, and was voted in because you know the 30% of say international folks who are working at you know the hospitals whose kids go to the public schools like don't they have a say in how we run our taxpayer money and how do we you know like they they are part of the community but an interesting Warren article that's coming up is ensuring language access so making sure that our documents are translated into at least some of the majority you know Chinese and some other languages because we have a very large um, Asian American community and Asian community too. Um, so those are, you know, I don't know. I, I like it and dislike it. And and Pete, what uh, what you said about the people dropping out, you know, some nights I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? And, you know, <laughs> I, I have three kids, I have a full-time job, I have this radio show, you know, do I really need to be uh, putting in all these hours? And then some nights it's really rewarding. So we'll see. I think over time, as you get deeper and deeper into the the machinations, the workings at the local level, you you start to become more appreciative of all the unsung tasks that are going on in the various departments around town. Uh, I, for instance, uh, because we are a facility here in Franklin, we have uh, a radio station, we have a tower which sits on town property. Uh, we have an ongoing relationship with DPW, as well, of course, uh, police and fire. 
And we have a great relationship with town in general, where when we first erected our tower, we included police and fire on the tower. uh, And now we're adding DPW's uh, control systems. Uh, And what that does is it makes things function more smoothly for the town at no cost once it's all done. So we're modifying all of the tower right now to accommodate those additional services. And, you know, you meet the rank and file, the people at DPW who make it all happen. And um, I am always quietly in awe of all the background things that they do that they don't farm out to other companies. They just have a staff that do it. Oh, suddenly there's a pipe running underground for 300 feet that just magically showed up yesterday that runs from some distant place to our place, ready to run cables and digital information and everything else. Oh, suddenly there's a new statue and a monument in, in the common, you know, with beautiful brickwork and everything else. And, and where did all that come from? And you find out that it was all done by the guys in the yellow vests that everybody likes to make fun of. And it's a beautiful thing. And I also think that the management deserves a nod because they really make the dollars go very, very far. Oh, it, oh! Listen, I can I, uh, I can attest to that firsthand. When uh, Mike Kelly and I ran the Fourth of July celebration, we were in awe of how our DPW basically set up the common. They were the ones who built the uh, the booths uh they were the ones who uh, laid out the 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 plan for uh the carnival that came into town they were the ones who took the booths down they were the ones who cleared the the grass who then reseeded the grass every year after uh, the 4th of July celebration and they were the ones who came every day to empty out uh, the big uh, dumpster that we were putting all of our trash in. And again, none of that was, as you say, Pete, uh, outsourced. It was all in town. Uh, <clears throat> now, it's important, too, that there are a number of services that people don't see that are also essential. The treasurer's office, for example, they, uh, I, I, I ended up personally uh, overpaying my, my sewer and water bill and they didn't send me a letter. They called me on the phone <laughs> and said, oh, by the way, we've got a check here because uh, you've already paid your sewer and water bill. So what do you want us to do with it? And I said, well, can you keep it and then put it on? Sure, sure, sure. You don't see that kind of personal service anymore. As a matter of fact, most entities are looking for how can we automate that? How can right. we take a person out of the loop? Yes. And just make it so that a computer does that function. And that's one of the wonderful things, too, I think, about a responsive local uh, entity and government. Exactly. And uh, you know, to Natalia's point also, in Franklin, and as you were mentioning also in Brookline, in Franklin, even though we are now a city, we've preserved many of the aspects of the town. In fact, we quietly joke about the fact that the official name is the town of Franklin. It's not just Franklin. And actually, as you can see, it says that right on our badge, on our on our town seal. Anyway, uh, making an effort to keep 
some of the aspects of town government, like citizen engagement, again, as pointed out earlier, on the rise, thanks to technology. There is a portion in every one of the committee meetings where we open the floor to public comments, a nod back to the true form of town meeting where everybody had an opportunity to speak. And what we do is we provide three minutes, four minutes, whatever the format is, for somebody to be able to speak uninterrupted about whatever their issue is, put it on the table for consideration. Also, in an effort to be fair, uh, and a lot of people don't understand this, the committees do not respond in that moment to whatever was said. It draws no official position. People just get to speak, and then they move on to the next thing. Well, what it does is it provides feedback to town management, to the committee members, uh, and they get to absorb all that. And they may, in fact, incorporate those comments back into a future meeting after they've been able to informally deliberate, consider it, and say, here's where we're going with this new initiative that we've now put into motion, you know, perhaps even referring back to comment from one or two meetings earlier. So having public comment is something that I find they take very seriously, even though the format for it, where there's no give and take in the moment, doesn't necessarily indicate that, but I think that they do pretty well with it. It takes a lot of patience too, uh, as you were saying, not because there are times uh, like I know if I had lived in Brookline when the allowing international citizens or not citizens, but international residents to participate in local government, believe it or not, I'm, I would have been strongly opposed to that. Again, uh, I, I love my international friends and those who are in the country and who are here, but they're not citizens. And I think that's one of the things, too, that sometimes we forget. And again, this is not I don't think this is a partisan issue, Democrat or Republican, believe it or not. I don't think it's progressive, liberal or conservative. I think it's a matter of how do we define citizenship? And I think that's part of where at the local level, and I'm beginning to see this more again in Franklin, I think it's one of the things that we don't do enough is to truly listen, deep listen to what some of our citizens are saying. And some of it, for example, I know we had a town councilor at one point who was questioning CRT, critical race theory, and was under the false impression that critical race theory was part of the curriculum here in Franklin. And I'm not sure that that particular council member understood when, when, when they were told point blank, one, we don't know what you're talking about. And number two, it's not in our curriculum. <clears throat> Some of that is pent up frustration again, in terms of what I may have seen on TV or heard from some news source that these things are permeating from, quote unquote, from whatever direction you want to call left, right, up, down, and it's in your community. And then when people are asking the question, sometimes they get the run around, but sometimes they get the absolute truth right away. I know if someone came to a, uh, a school committee meeting and said, I don't like uh, critical race theory being taught, uh, and I think I've seen this happen. It, you know, a comment like that may elicit an immediate response from either the school committee or the superintendent. And, and I've seen in some instances where the school committee will say, superintendent, can you address that? I mean, is there something you can address today right now? And they might say, well, 
uh, give me an opportunity to research or they'll know right up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I can address that. We don't have such a program in our school. So it might be interesting then to ask the citizen, where did you hear this or where did this information come from? Because we'll research it to make sure that those sources are now blocked uh, from dispensing that misinformation. That's a key point, too, is that with misinformation, disinformation, seemingly on the rise, almost rampant, I have to think that some of that affects the ability of local leadership as much as it does with you know the federal mandates that we talk about, what's going on with the vaccine, which is obviously a big target of focus for these kinds of discussions. But perhaps more perniciously, there's also the notion that this has an effect on local volunteerism and participation in these committees because they have to find a way to provide guidance against all of those headwinds. As yes. you know, as you know, we've had what two or three people step down from committees because of the uh, increased uh, degree of agita, difficulty, uh, thanklessness of citizens who really didn't understand what was going on. And in right. that vacuum, assuming the worst. I think what's also hard sometimes, Pete, is like when people don't know what's within the control of local government and what's outside of their control. And, and that has come up a lot in COVID. For example, early on, Brooklyn was saying, why is the health department not providing a vaccine you know, clinic for all of us? Like they can do it. And then I would speak to the health commissioner and he'd say, you know, the town has given me 200 vaccines. The, the state has given me 200 vaccines total. Like I cannot do a clinic with 200 vaccines and that's beyond my control and that kind of back and forth. But, you know, I know we wanted to talk about the tangible things that we're seeing um, and enjoying. Some of the tangible things are, you know, really small. For example, Brookline, again, our, our sort of parks and I think it was our parks and recreations put out different parklets like, uh, you know, a little table and greenery in parking spots to allow for outdoor dining, but not that you had to go to a restaurant so that if someone, say, didn't have the means to sit at a fancy restaurant's parking lot, they could pick up their lunch from home and, you know, a lot more availability. And it's these little things that at times residents really value and I hope will continue kind of the innovation that was that was brought in. I like to look at those things as governmental grace notes. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. I took a photo and then, you know, would say thank you. But Michael, to your point about citizens versus residents, and I'm I'm glad that uh, Jeff is with us now. I was saying that in Brooklyn, there had been a word article in the past that allowed uh, non-citizen residents to vote in local elections. I mean, they do live in that neighborhood, right? So if you if you think of local government as serving at the most immediate level, the needs of residents rather than, you know, we can include in that list, not just, you know, the high sort of you know, Brooklyn has a lot of these, you know, doctors and scientists who are coming from overseas, but we should include people who are undocumented, but who day to day do pay taxes and are part of the community and have needs like public transportation for free public transportation or uh, free access to, you know, food and after school programs may be very beneficial to them and couldn't they, shouldn't they have a say? So I don't know, I am torn. I agree with you that there is a distinction between citizen and not citizen, but something about local government to me is like, you serve all residents, not just the residents who are citizens. Well, I, well, my pushback on that though, Natalia, is that the, albeit you may be a resident in that community and albeit you may be even paying taxes, 
because as a foreign national, you still are subject to the laws of both the local municipality, the state, and the federal. However, uh, I would think it's incumbent upon the citizens who live around those folks to listen to them and then to take what their concerns might be and bring that then to the elected officials as a citizen. In other words, I think citizenship has some responsibilities. It's not a benign kind of activity. So if I believe that my neighbor who is from Turkey, who's here for a four-year residency, has some things and, and, and I'm talking to them, or if I want their input, I as a citizen then can go and get their input or say, hey, you know, what do you think about our schools? If you had to take a look. So I don't think that that's just the sole responsibility of the elected official. I think we as citizens have that responsibility. But if I go to Turkey and I live in a neighborhood in Turkey, are they going to say me as a U.S. citizen just because I live there? Now I get to participate in the local uh, activities of that particular Turkish town or city? I don't think so. And I think that that's only fair to those of us who are citizens because part of our responsibility is to follow what our elected officials are doing. And it's one of the things I don't think we do enough in terms of explaining what a representative form of government means and what our role in that representative form of government happens to be. And, and before our good friend Jeff uh, sort of jumps all over me on this, uh, <laughs> one of the things, too, that I think is important is when we're talking about access and the hybrid kinds of meetings, uh, I think for years, citizens have been saying that at the state level, that they ought to have a little more outflow, if you will, uh, and exposure and transparency to what they're doing um, in Boston, too, as our representatives. We don't get enough in terms of streaming of committee meetings. And so maybe you can address that, Jeff. Well, hey, it's good to be here. Listen, I, I as I was uh, listening to the conversation unfold, I said, let me look and see what the state of the law is on all of this and uh, learned that in 1996, uh, Congress passed a law prohibiting non-citizens from voting in federal elections. And it's a, a penalty uh, of a fine, one year in prison or both. And uh, But that, that federal law doesn't address what happens at the state or local level. And as of uh, March of 2020, uh, two state constitutions specified that non-citizens may not vote in state or local elections, and that's Arizona and North Dakota. Uh, but it's also important to note that no state constitution explicitly allows non-citizens to vote in state or local elections. And then we move down to the municipal level, and 14 municipalities across the country allowed non-citizens to vote in local elections, and 11 of them are located in Maryland, uh, two are located in Vermont, and the other was in San Francisco, California. So that kind of, I think, puts it in context that this is, um, I would dare say, not a very popular um, position around the United States. So Michael, no, I'm not jumping all over you. Um, it's, uh, it's a fascinating thing, but I do agree uh, with the principle that citizenship accords certain responsibilities and duties, and uh, it's up to the citizens as to whether or not uh, they want non-citizens 
to participate in their election process. And I think I would love to, uh, you know, see what our citizens uh, feel about that. Uh, and I think the last constitutional amendment in Massachusetts was actually a voting amendment uh, to uh, prohibit uh, people living in prisons uh, from voting. Uh, so the last time Massachusetts residents got a chance to, to consider this issue, they, they restricted the voting for um, prisoners. And I don't know if you're familiar with how Massachusetts uh, changes its constitution, but uh, it has to go through the general court in two successive sessions. Uh, so it takes four years to get a question on the ballot, and then uh, it's up to the voters to decide uh, how, they were, how they're going to do it. And I would wonder what the appetite is among the voters in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts um, for this. And I was also trying to figure out, did you say Brookline already does this? Or the, no, no, we don't them? do it. So okay. it had, because I don't think it's it had, legal. We were anymore. talking, it's not legal, exactly. Yeah. It was a town meeting warrant and we had passed it and then there had been a home rule petition that came to the state house and it was turned down and it was not alone. It's Amherst, Brookline, Cambridge, Newton, and some other places have past home rule petition. So at the at our local level, we I, I it was before I was a town meeting member, but I understand it was voted by our town meeting and then it comes to the state uh, law, lawmakers to allow it and it was turned down uh, as was for the others. So all those meanies on Beacon. All Hill. those meanies, exactly. So, you know, it's we were talking about the idea that, you know, you can do and there are some actually before you joined Jeff, we were talking about uh, we just passed last night because I'm in the middle of town meeting right now to come to you around hybrid meetings to become kind of the reality. And I know that's also a home rule petition because we want to lift the idea that you have to have the chair and quorum in person because that you know deprives parents of young kids, uh, people with disabilities from being able to participate. So I'm hoping that that is a lesson from COVID that you will take seriously. I, I agree the non-citizen one is more controversial, but the allowing for hybrid meetings, I hope is actually something that um, We'll go forward. Well, I'll have to talk to Representative Vitolo and see how he feels about that. But the beauty of it is that we've already seen the many benefits of it and how it has facilitated so many discussions at all the town committee levels and the level of engagement and how it has enhanced the open meeting laws. And that said, I think that as we go through the winter, because I believe that the state law goes away come spring. But as we go through this winter and, you know, the snow flies and the bad weather and the cold stuff kicks in and my joints begin to ache and I can still participate. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I think that hopefully logic and practicality will prevail come time to consider whether or not we make uh, digital electronic remote representation something of a more enduring uh, element of our open meeting laws. So fingers crossed on that one. But Here's I can say I'm in favor of it yeah. Yeah, because um, if anything, uh, I think it's increased participation Absolutely. in democracy and anything that increases participation in democracy, uh, I'm in favor of. And let's see what lessons we've learned from this process and, and do it right. Now, Jeff, you have an interesting history because you used to be involved in town council for quite some time um, before you moved on to state. And so in an opportunity for mentoring here, as Natalia is now a newbie at the town council level, what advice would you offer her? Well, I would say 
pick out the leaders in your community at these meetings and observe what they do and how they respond. It's, uh, it's nice to follow the people that, that, that make sense and uh, don't become an outlier out there. The other thing I wanted to share is uh, when I was on the council, we actually voted on whether or not we were going to allow remote participation. And, uh, you know, the open meeting law was revised to allow it. Uh, there was some initial resistance to the concept of uh, remote participation, uh, but uh, we ended up doing it and uh, it's become uh, seamless. Uh, the only inconvenience is that all of the votes have to be done by a roll call. So that kind of slows down the pace of the meeting. But other than that, uh, it allows for the members to participate no matter where they are. And we've had people all over the world who are able to call in and participate in the meeting. And uh, I think that's important to, to, preserve, to uh, preserve democracy but, and, and take advantage of uh, the technology that's available that allows us to do that. Also, uh, sort of returning to the central premise, uh, and I was musing uh, along with uh, our other members of the gang here about the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, it's really all about how local government keeps the wheels of progress moving. And that's really an amazing thing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when you look at, uh, you know, I, I made mention earlier of uh, the treasurer's office. When you look at the planning board, you look at uh, buildings and permits, you look at uh, all of the codes that are have to be administered from town hall in terms of not just what citizens do, but what they, uh, you know, but what we are allowed or restricted from doing. Uh, like, I just can't build a building on my property. Uh, just for the sake of me putting up a building, uh, there are codes and things that have to be, and much of this is unseen because some of this we do sporadically, you know, if you're remodeling, uh, but some of it, uh, again, when you have a developer come in town, you don't want that developer just to willy nilly go and just put up whatever they want and charge whatever they want. And the town plays a really, I think, good function in terms of helping to not only monitor that, but to make sure that, it's administered properly for the betterment of the town and the citizens. I would, when you talk about betterment, that's a great jumping in place for me because when we were building our studio, we, you know, we bought what was a mini mart in a residential area and we were going to expand it substantially for our physical studio and so on. And uh, talking to Gus Brown, building inspector, uh, I sat down with him, went over our plans early on as well as with the planning board and other people. And he piped in and he said, you know, one of the things you ought to look at here is if you could find a way to put in a second ramp. I know you already ramp into the front door and that's great for access and whatnot for, you know, people who are disabled. But if you could find a way to do another ramp somewhere so that we have two forms of egress for everyone, that would be great. And we sat down and we noodled it and he looked at the plane and said, what about over here? And what, you could do this. And I went away thinking about it. And I said, you know, that is one damn fine plan <laughs> that works. And I sat with our architects and cranked it into the equation, built a nice little pergola over it. So it's very decorative. It's outside. Yeah. And, you know, there isn't a single day when we're hauling all of our equipment in and out of the building and getting ready to go off and do local sports coverage or some event. 
and we're wheeling things in and out and the doors are opening automatically and we're doing all this stuff in the ramp and we don't even think about it. But at the end of the day, every single one of our crew members benefits from an idea that was had by a local government official trying to be helpful. And rather than someone looking at it as, oh, they're imposing something on us, you know, for people who are disabled and at the end of the day, our facility is much better off for it. We did some things that cost a couple of bucks in the beginning. Everybody benefits. Everybody wins. And it was a very thoughtful discussion. And I remind Gus all the time that, you know, I'm forever thankful that he was able to look at our plans with a new eye and say, here's some things you can do. So it went beyond what people often consider to be the enforceables. They're enforcing, you know, the building codes and all that stuff. And you look at it negative. But here Mm -hmm. was a guy who stepped up and said, oh, like what you did over here with this plan. How about this? And actually noodled it with us in the conceptual stage. And then we were able to execute and come up with something that was actually better than where we were at the outset. That's real engagement. And that's something that a local official could take a certain amount of pride in the fact that somehow he made things a little bit better just by having a discussion about it and the day-to-day of things. Well, you know, that brings up citizen participation too, because there are times when there will be something on the town council agenda, for example, about some uh, renovation of a street or something. And, you know, and this happened on my street. And what happened to us was a situation where the town council didn't listen to us. And as a result, the the situation was one where uh, at the end of our street, there was a uh, kind of an odd turning situation because the street angle when you're coming out of my street is not a, a pure T. It's more like a curve into a Y. And as a result of that, they widened the, uh, uh, the street at that turning juncture, but then they put in a median in order to protect a hydrant that was there. And in doing so, made the turn circumference even more radical than it was before. And those of us who lived on the street told them that that was a bad idea. And apparently someone, again, in the Uh, either planning or whatever, had told the town council, well, if we do this and do that, it'll cost this and, you know, and then we'll lose this and whatever. And then we'll have to move the, I think it's not only a hydrant that they would have had to move, but also a, uh, a utility pole. So the town council didn't listen to us. Well, now at that particular juncture, uh, trucks, delivery trucks, the large ones can't make that turn, uh, easily. Uh, it slows down traffic. And then there's another example uh, of things that sometimes when a developer comes in, uh, and let me give you a great, uh, 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 <laughs> I think a great instance in Franklin uh, at the, uh, there's the shopping center where Stop and Shop is. And I don't know if our citizens have realized, but that's a very, very dangerous shopping center. And here's why. There's one entrance and one exit. And as a result of that, it becomes, in the international parlance of terrorism, a soft target. If, uh, and we've brought this up, and I'm not saying anything and stuff that's either secretive or I brought this up to the planning commission. I brought it up to, and I think one of our prior 
uh, police chiefs was in total agreement with me and said, you know, we really need an emergency exit or another exit out of that shopping center. Uh, and if you go to down the, uh, uh, down the road to our friends in Rentham, if you've ever been to the Rentham, uh, uh, to the outlet malls, every, and, and, and we're about to start this cycle with the, uh, with the holidays coming up, there are two directions where there's only one entrance into that outlet mall, and then the traffic starts to back up, and I've seen it backed up on 495 in both directions, trying to get off for that exit at least three or four miles in both directions, right on 495. And so there are times when citizens are trying to make something better, but the representatives don't listen, which is their right as, a, as an elected official. But then how do you go back and correct that? Which is why I like town meeting, <laughs> actually, because at a town meeting, you can get a uh, uh, enough of the town meeting members to go in and say, no, 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 we want this changed. And so you have that direct citizenship participation uh, at volume or at scale to where you can get something changed or, uh, or done that in a town council situation uh, is a little more difficult. Speaking of things that people want change in Brooklyn and in other parts of the town, and I don't know why there's been a big uh, rodent issue, like traffic, rodents, these are the things that are not fun to think about, but actually the things that make life really challenging. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Sort of town meeting will be like, well, you know, it's your responsibility, you know, throw your trash around. But once you see this increase, and maybe because of COVID, it may be because of other things, but the issues, the day-to-day -day issues that people care about are not often the, you know, the ones we discuss in this meeting around voting rights and about participation. And it is about, you know, there's mice in my building, there's trash outside my door, there is, you know, it's unsafe to cross the streets. We had a very tragic accident. Um, a pedestrian was killed in Brooklyn a few weeks ago, and that has kind of escalated, you know, are our streets safe? Actually, the school my daughter goes to school in uh, Pierce, the Brooklyn school, is the only school in Brooklyn that is, the playground is divided from the, the school and there's a bridge that goes over it. So the kids go up over the bridge, but many kids, you know, just cross the street and it's a pretty dangerous one. Like those are the types of things that I know, Pete, you wanted us to, to highlight. Like these are where local government needs to act, making our streets safe, clean, healthy, um, and making the environment a place that is, you know, is, is, is one where families want to live. You know, obviously I have my mom hat on right now, but when I put, picked Brookline as a, as a place for us to live, it was because the schools are really good. Um, you know, I live in an apartment. I don't live in a house because I can't afford to live in a house in Brookline, but I live in an apartment. We have beautiful parks. So, you know, not having a yard doesn't really matter because there's a park around the corner. There's this kind of culture of roaming kids, you know, eight-year-olds who go to the park on their own. And, you know, it's, it's funny hearing kind of the older generation talk about when they used to be able to go on the streets and go on their own. I am really excited that my eight-year-old, who's a third grader, goes to school on her own, has keys, comes back, goes to the park on her own with her friends. And that is what I value. But for that to be valued is because, you know, there's a crossing guard. So I know she's safe to cross the street, but in the evenings, they're not there. So these are the, you know, day-to-day, -day, um, you know, what brings me happiness. And it's not really some of the other decisions that we spend eight hours a night trying to decide. So 
I don't know, any examples, Michael, of what, what makes you happy in your local community? Well, you're interesting because you, what you're talking about is called free-range parenting. And free-range parenting is an interesting phrase because in some municipalities, parents have been called out for not having some way to protect their kids going 50 feet away from the house or something or playing at the playground across the street unsupervised. Now, I am of a certain age where back in the 50s when I was growing up, I thought nothing of, of you know, going two or three towns away on my bike, uh, even going out of state on my bike, believe it or not. Yeah, I'll be home at some point. Anyway, the, the point is uh, the way that kids were supervised, you know, when I was growing when I was growing up is very different than today. And I think finding a way to strike a balance is, is the thing. But you, you point out the fact that you know, between the crossing guard and street markings, and pathways and opportunities to provide local safety uh, for citizenry and for kids, et cetera. So that way they have the opportunity to get out there and not feel, you know, threatened or whatever is, is again, it's all part of how local government manages to create the public spaces that we create, be they inviting, be they safe, be they well-organized and accessible to everyone. Well, you know, that I, I, I again revert to even the next level, which is the responsibility of the citizens uh, uh, to help with uh, keeping the streets and the environment safe. And uh, and I think what Natalia is describing is that distinction between urban, uh, high density kind of life, as opposed to a suburban or even I forget what that term is. That's not suburban and it's not rural, but there's another sort of entity out there that's described in the metropolitan descriptors uh, where you have a, uh, a household. Uh, and I like that term uh, uh, free range children, because in in an urban environment, uh, that's one of the things that parents strive for uh, is the ability to teach my children how to walk the streets, how to be safe, uh, crossing the street, uh, playing in the playground, uh, because the parent understands that I can't be with you when you go to the park all the time. And at what age do we sort of release you and, you know, and let your free range like you, Pete. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, that age was somewhere around eight years old, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and bikes were very important to that existence. Uh, I mean, bikes were my mobility. Uh, I could Especially go if to, you had a paper route. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> well, I didn't have a paper route, but I had my uh, <laughs> my lawnmower in tow. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> OK, because uh, I didn't like getting up at five o'clock in the morning to deliver the papers. But I truly enjoyed my Saturdays and Friday afternoons cutting people's lawns, man. Uh, you know, and uh, in those days to cut someone's yard, front yard, and this is no exaggeration, but I, I think both of us are dating ourselves, Pete. Uh, you know, I could cut a small front yard for a dollar, uh, you uh -huh. know, cause it only took me what, five minutes, <laughs> you know, so, so that's not bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, heck, you know, uh, you know, and gas was only, uh, 10 cents a gallon. So, <laughs> so kids still have that, like, 
desire to be entrepreneurs. I, my daughter again, and her friends, like neighbor kids have set up this shop outside of our house every Wednesday, like on the front porch. And they sell everything from like their old toys to, and they, and they have a sign now saying uh, here every Wednesday. And it was funny, a, a neighbor passed by and said, oh, who are you collecting money for? And then they were both kind of like, it wasn't both, it was four little girls. They were all kind of shocked. And then they discussed it and they decided they're going to donate everything to Afghan refugees, which I'm really proud of that. I'm proud that the neighbor kind of forced them to, you know, I think initially it was going to be just for themselves. But they have now, with telling people that they're donating the money to Afghan refugees, in the last two months, they've raised $400. I'm really impressed hey, by good them. good on them. It is a lot of money. I mean, I think they're upping their prices and saying it's for Afghan refugees to the community, but they stay there every Wednesday after school. They set up shop. And yesterday they were selling brownies that they baked. And, you know, it's that kind of entrepreneurial spirit is still there. And I do worry that a lot of parenting were so obsessed with, you know, making sure that they're academically driven, that they're in their, you know, after school programs. And a lot of us who are working parents, just the supervision, we just can't do the supervision. So we need to plop them somewhere for someone else. So I love that Wednesdays, you know, it's right. I can see her from, because I work from home on Wednesdays. I can look out the window. I can see her and her friends on the front porch. I know they're harassing everybody walking by and asking them to buy Uh things, but you know, it's, it is what it is. And I love it. I love it. Not only do you know, and, and part of, I think the responsibility as parents, Natalia, is to let them know that, wait a minute, not 100% of this folks has to go to the, the Afghan refugees. All right. You, you know, some of this you keep for your overhead, some of this you keep for future development, you know, and, uh, you know, but I love that spirit in kids. And especially when, uh, you know, when they had to think about, well, who is this going to? And there's nothing wrong with keeping the money for you. I know. It just <laughs> it just was, it was a funny sort of, they're debating. Actually, yesterday, sure. we live across from town hall. So there was a protest of uh, by the Brookline educators, the union. And so I got a text from the mom of one, it's our neighbor downstairs saying, my daughter wants to go sell the brownies at the protest. Are you okay with Amalia coming across? I was like, okay, that's fine. So they went to the uh, you know, to the teacher. So it's kind of it also is communication skills that they're developing, Absolutely. explaining what they're doing. But it was an interesting um, and the know. observation, the observation of children. And again, I you know I've heard uh, a number of uh, prominent uh, politicians talk about how children are watching us, and it's true. Yes, it's true. Uh, children are watching the things that they see on TV, what they see on their street, what they're, you know, what they're hearing on the radio. And it's important for those role models, I think, to be positive and to have in mind that these young impressionable minds are picking up on what you're uh, either what you're protesting or how you're protesting. Uh, And I think it's important. And I, you know, I just love that story, Natalia. Um, uh, you know, and so reserve me some brownies. I'll, I'll, I'll pay whatever the going rate is and stuff. <laughs> That's a great opportunity for me to, to chime in with an observation that I made recently during our local election. Um, and I think I've got the right capper for our discussion. Um, again, congratulations, by the way, on becoming part of Brookline Town Council. Uh, a, a, you're doing God's work. And, and that said, I remember uh, when we were talking about you know, little girls being entrepreneurial, et cetera. First, there were children at the local elections that we held in the gym at the high school. 
quite a few of them accompanying their parents as they cast their votes. The first time I voted many years ago, I went through this transformative moment. It was a local election. And as we know, in local elections, not so many folks perhaps turn out. But I went to this one, cast my vote. And there is a moment when you throw your ballot into the machine and you feel like you've done something. That's something I want everyone to experience. So if you haven't voted, understand that it's a joyful obligation, particularly at the local level. And I stepped out and I went to leave. And in the school, there was a bake sale and the little girls with their brownie uniforms, they're all sitting there selling their cupcakes and whatnot. And the world went into slow motion. It was a Rockwellian moment. This is America. It was the reason why I voted, but I didn't know it at the time. And it was a very local moment. So I hope everyone has an appreciation for what's actually happening amongst your neighbors and the people who are the helpers and the people who are making it all go at the local level. And it's at the local level where we start making our march toward a more perfect union. For Dr. Mike, Dr. Natalia, and Representative Jeff Roy, thanks for listening. This is Franklin Public Radio.